live a bit late for episode nine of the First Strike podcast, brought to you by the good folks at facefacegames.com. As always, I want to remind everyone that uh, this podcast is available on YouTube for later viewing, and you can subscribe to our iTunes podcast on matterdeprived.com. For this episode, we've got I got to bring the Hamilton Army in this episode. So for sure, we got Rob Lombardi. How's it going, Rob? What's up, everyone? And we got my good buddy, Doug Potter. From the great Yo, what's province going on? Alberta. Alberta, greater than Ontario. Just throwing it out there. <laughs> it, greater as in it's higher up on the earth? Hey, man, you can just think however you want, but uh, I think it's greater in most senses. Magically, <laughs> gatheringly, and definitely magic the gatheringly. <laughs> oh, I was talking weird a bit, at least from my end, because I forgot to mute the YouTube stream, so I was just like hearing myself blasting in my ears <laughs> just now. So, uh, but I, mean, I, I normally feel that when you talk KYT, so it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... The big thing, there, there wasn't much uh, crazy, at least not that I was able to see any crazy Twitter controversy, any Todd Anderson PV stuff. Uh, it was all focused on the pre-release. There was just one major thing. Of course, there were other things that we'll talk about, but uh, the pre-release of Ether Revolt, uh, or Aether Revolt, I, I, I still can't decide how to pronounce magic cards. <laughs> came out this uh, past weekend. There was a bunch of pre-releases everywhere, face-to-face games, stores uh, across the world. Uh, Did you guys manage to play in any, Doug? Yeah, I got to play in one. Um, My work schedule right now is evenings, and it's pretty tough to be able to actually get out. But I decided Friday after a crazy long day of uh, school and work to head out to a midnight pre-release, which is super fun. Uh, It was at uh, card store Star Lotus Gamings here in Edmonton. And yeah, I had a blast there. It It was a lot of fun. Do you want me to talk about it? or? Uh... Well, did you get to place anything, uh, Rob? Yeah, I, I, uh, I managed to get to one as well. Uh, it was my son's first birthday party this weekend, so I was kind of jammed up doing family stuff uh, for most of the weekend, but I, I managed to slip out to uh, a very small event on Sunday. Hmm. All right. Oh, actually, yeah, Doug, sure. Uh, talk about your, your, your experience uh, briefly. Yeah, so um, this set was pretty sweet. I... Uh, you know, I, I laid out all my cards and I remember feeling in the last format personally that um, my decks would often kind of push me in pretty like distinct directions just when I was looking at the cards because, you know, there's so so much difference between uh, if you can support like the, the energy themes or if your deck is more tempo oriented or if your uh, deck is more, you know, slower and controlly. But when I was looking at all of these cards, I think it probably has to do with the mechanic revolt or it could have been with my specific pool but um i just felt like i had way more options of how i can do things uh, you can kind of get cheeky trying to have more uh, artifacts that might not impact the the game other than reducing the cost of spells some of them can then sacrifice which can trigger revolt uh, so you kind of have those themes in there uh, of course there's some cards that are very 
pushed power level wise. Um, you know, one card that we were talking about internally that was a card that was an MVP for me all day is the Untethered Express, which we can talk more about later. But, uh, you know, cards like that, that kind of give you that feel like you want to be beating down another card is like the Mobile Garrison, the 3-4 three, for 3 that you kind of crew and can attack and untap stuff. So, I don't know, I just felt like I had options. There were some cool combat tricks in this format. You know, some of the removal was... Um, it wasn't just like obvious, you know, where it would be good cards like shock or like the four mana, uh, kill, kill a creature, like are obviously good, but they're not like just doom blades. So you kind of have to think about what your deck is going to be struggling against and what your deck, uh, is going to have success against, you know, where is your interaction with flyers? So it was a pretty sweet experience. I started 2-0. Uh, there was a problem with Wizards Event Reporter, so uh, we it took a long break before we could get our next round up, and uh, we only decided to play three rounds instead of four, which I ended up losing a really fun match. So, uh, yeah, 2-1. I had a great time at it. The cards just felt fun. Everything felt fresh, and I was thinking about a lot because of cards like Revolt, thinking about how I want to block or the way that I race to not put permanence in the graveyard maybe, or to put permanence and how I can like bluff attack based on revolt cards I played in earlier games. And it's sweet. That was kind of my opinion on, on the, the format. I had a blast. Okay. So, uh, Rob, are you going to tell us how, how crappy of a time you had? No, it was actually, <laughs> uh, it was actually pretty good. Uh, I, I got mana screw the first round and lost and then went three one. So I guess I could complain about that if I wanted to. But um like overall from a design standpoint, like the set actually does seem uh like it offers a very good sealed format, which I think Kaladesh kinda lacked. Like Kaladesh was uh pretty good for draft. It definitely had some holes in it. Like I think uh, like black had some places where it was a little deficient, blue was a little deficient or a lot deficient in, in some areas. But um once you started drafting, you were kinda on rails, but there was a lot of fun things to do, so it kind of made up for it. I feel like this set is a little bit less uh like hyper synergistic where you have to have a synergistic deck or, or you're screwed. But there are lots of uh, cool like card by card synergies where you can do some blinking or some tricksy stuff to get some revolt triggers where you know you really have to kind of plan your turn and think about what's going on and that makes the games uh, pretty interesting uh, the removal seems to be maybe just a little bit better than it was in Kaladesh and that kind of slows the pace of the games down a bit uh, which allows you to like brew these kind of like weird uh, you know long game like dirtily decks that get to kind of go off it with revolt triggers and and etb effects and stuff like that so uh yeah i had a lot of fun i think everyone around me was having fun the decks seemed interesting and uh i couldn't see like that one like two uh color pair was just completely dominant and where you wanted to be and it looked like everyone had a deck that was at least playable it's not that maybe they didn't build it so that it was playable but like the bull of cards they were given they could have made a playable deck so uh yeah, it's 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 good. I think they did a good job with this. Maybe they should have started with Aether Revolt. <laughs> <laughs> um, for for pre-releases, uh, there's always people who prefer a certain amount of rounds, a certain uh, type of prize structure. Um, Doug, what kind of prize structure are you looking for? What, what for you as a player? What do you enjoy the most, and what do you appreciate? What type of features uh, are you looking for? I mean, a lot of people experiment with different stuff. So I'd like to see uh, how it's been going in Alberta. Yeah, well, um, in my life, I haven't experimented with a lot of different things, but I guess we'll just talk about magic right now. Um, anyways, uh, prize, prize support-wise, I don't really care at pre-releases. I mean, when we get into, like, release events and stuff like that, I, it matters more to me, you know, going forward. But pre-releases, 
I, I just always feel like it's a more kind of casual vibe. And um, I really like when the atmosphere is people having fun. And uh, so, so whether we're talking about, you know, top heavy or bottom heavy or whatever, it kind of doesn't matter to me. Uh, one thing I am happy about is the Alberta scene has a few different offerings of types of pre-releases. Like the one that I was at uh, was more, um, you know, like two packs per win or something like that for just like a baseline per number of rounds for four rounds we have one that is more if you get in like the top three or four you'll get significantly more prizes than if you get lower um so that kind of stuff doesn't usually lure me but one thing that i think is really cool that we do in alberta and it's not every store and it's kind of just um percolating and picking up a little bit more but it started in a sentry box in calgary a little while ago where they would bring in some different people to help enrich the pre-release experience. Like they would often bring in a deck doctor. And recently it's been uh, uh, Tyler Bloom who'd been doing the deck doctoring. So you could go up to him and lay out your pool and he could talk to you about it, like how, uh, how it's going and you could play a game against him for a pack or they would bring in gunslingers. And that's something that I was brought down to Calgary a couple times before. And basically it would be like myself and Brian Sue and some others would just be in the tournament. If you beat us, you get a booster pack. And if we beat you, we keep the booster pack. And and it's this, this little kind of bonus in the pre-release for people to just be talking about. And actually the, the pre-release I went to the midnight one, I got to be a, a gunslinger and it was cool because the store owner had some random packs in envelopes and you didn't know what you were playing for. But if you beat me, you got to keep that random pack. And if I won, I got uh, some special packs. And so the guy who beat me got an Eternal Masters pack, which he was super hyped about. And uh, the what, the matches that I won, I was able to get myself an Eternal Masters pack and a Modern Masters 2015 pack. So, you know, it's not directly in the prize support, but it's just these cool little features that, you know, they're trying out here. I know that at that store, there was like a championship belt for the two-headed giant that they'd get to like they, they like had over their shoulder i saw in a picture and they had gunslingers as well so it's just you know these little things i think that's kind of what pre-release is about in my opinion um so I, I say kudos to the store owners here that are trying different things to kind of make some excitement and make the atmosphere a little bit more fun and uh and that's kind of what i'm into <laughs> is there any of that stuff in hamilton yeah, we, we actually used to do that stuff at uh, one of the, the main local stores um, before they kind of moved out of the city. Um, we had, you know, gunslinging and uh, uh, bounties and stuff like that. And, and it was pretty sweet, and I participated in some of that stuff, and I used to like it. Uh, it was a lot of fun, and people really kind of get into that, and they're like, oh, sweet. Like, yeah, I get to play against this guy. Like, he's, you know, done some interesting things. I hope I win. I can get an extra pack or two or, you know, whatever the promo is. And I, I think it creates um, kind of a good experience for – uh, some of the players don't get a chance to go to the PTQs or, or GPs or what have you. This time around, though, <laughs> the the pricing was like, I, I don't know, like the whole city just shifted, it seemed, and it was like hyper-casual centric. So um, almost everything was pack per win um, or like pack plus one per win or something like that. So like the, the event I played on Sunday, uh, John uh, went one, two, Jess went 2-2, two, two, and I went 3-1, and I ended up with four packs. Jess had three, and John had two. I'm just sitting here like, <laughs> how do you get two packs for going 1-2? What is – or 1-3, I guess it was. Like, what is happening? <laughs> and uh, the, the, rest of, the rest of the city had, um, had similar pricing structures, and we went to this store because that was where we used to play, like, exclusively very highly competitive magic. Like, all the best players in Hamilton used to play there. And, like, they've also, like, switched the way they do pricing to a more uh, casual structure. Um, and it's kind of sparked a lot of debate in our local group about 
you know, what what's going on and, like, what's driving this. And it seems that, uh, I don't know, I guess the casual players really appreciate that being able to win at least one pack unless you're, like, the only guy in the event that goes 0-4. But, I mean, it makes it almost – I I'm not going to go to, like, a pack per win, like a Swiss-style tournament locally. It's just, like, not – uh, worth the, my time, right? In, in EV, really. And I know, like, pre-release is supposed to be funsies and stuff, but, I mean, you have to kind of make it worthwhile for uh, some of the, I don't know, better-known names to kind of come out to your shop, I guess. Maybe the stores don't really value that. I don't know. Doug, you guys seem to get, like, a little more respect <laughs> in Alberta <laughs> from your local shops than we do here. I, I mean, the shop owners here, I, I think that they're smart, you know, by trying these different things and trying to get people out. And they're really often asking for feedback. They'll post in MTG Alberta and they'll ask sometimes, you know, would, would this be a type of tournament people would be interested with more top heavy pricing or, you know, what, what are things people want? And like the warp chain, they have three different stores, warp one, two, and three. So they have this opportunity with the three to run different prize structures, even within their, you know, chain uh, where, you know, a lot of my friends who are more ca- uh, more competitive, like Marcel Zafra or or Eric Chan, these guys are going to the Warp One events because the prizing is very top heavy. You know, they can go three one or whatever and get like half a box or something like that. Um, and, and a lot of these stores are, uh, or maybe that's maybe that's four zero. I don't know exactly, but I know that eighteen packs was all that they were talking about. So um, maybe they went three zero one. Either way. You know, these stores will say we'll give you some now and some on release day. So that's kind of a catch because Watsi, you know, does restrict them. But we don't care about stuff like that. You know, we're we're willing to wait. And then, yeah, these little perks just to try and, you know, entice people to, to come or just give back to, to players in the community. I don't know. I really appreciate the stores in Alberta. I can't say enough about the owners. Yeah, Rob, people love, uh, as I've learned more, being a media coordinator slash a lot of the things that I do like event local event planning a a lot of people just love flatter structures as opposed to I'm sure me and you would prefer a more top heavy because winner takes all yeah (laughs) we believe in our skill and uh a lot of these even games whether it be um magic pokemon Yu-Gi-Oh, and especially these other games I found that people love it uh to have to at least a booster pack for entering. That's like a huge incentive, uh, regardless of, of how much they, they paid to, to enter. They they want to feel like they came away with something. And that's not something that I can personally relate to, but all these people have been telling me that, and it seems to, to be shown it right in front of my eyes uh, when I'm in the store. So uh, I, th- I think for pre-releases, that's, that's what they're gearing towards, Rob. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I'm just... I'm screwed, right? Like I used to grind a lot of value at pre-releases, and now uh, I—it's not even worth going, right? So, I'm, I guess that—that's where—that's where it's at. I mean, I think there's other ways to incentivize both sides of, uh, like, both groups to be happy. Like it, you can see it in the F and M promos, right? They're just—they're garbage, um, and no, no one's playing F and M to win a flaying tendrils or a news constrictor or whatever. But wizards must think that it entices someone. Like they want the prices to be bad enough or incentives to be bad enough so that like the the sharks don't come in and just like play to to get the sweet prizes so they but they want to make it like something useful for i guess a casual so that they're happy getting for like you know playing an fnm or whatever the stores are just jam-packed with these like flame tendrils and news constrictors and there's the garbage that watsi has been like dumping down their throats for the last year i mean they could just hand that out like if you go one two you get 
one of any of these FNM promos. If you go 2-2, you get three of any of these garbage <laughs> FNM promos. Like, if, if you're just happy winning literally anything, then that's not really taking away from the prize pool. It's not costing the store anything. And, like, if stores are short FNM promos, I'll donate all of my garbage uncommons back to you. Like, just hit me up, okay? I have, like, a stack full of flaying tendrils and noose constrictors that I am will be more than happy just to get rid of if, if it'll mean uh, that we can keep the prizes kind of at a reasonable rate where, you know, if you do well, you actually can accomplish something that's worth talking about. Whether like, <laughs> I went 4-0, I got five packs. I went 3-1, I got four packs and like a, you know, a, a pull from the, the bulk binder. It's like, okay, well, like, what are we even playing for? <laughs> <laughs> you maybe think of if, if only these events were big enough, you maybe think of like doing it MTGO style, have like a competitive <laughs> pre-release and the friendly <laughs> pre-release. A, a local store did that. Actually, they had alternating events uh, for um, Kaladesh, where like the first event was what they call balance structure, and the next event they had competitive structure, and it was interesting because it was like, okay, well, I'm going to play this event here at 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 noon, but then I'm not going to play like the 5 p.m. I have to go to another store for the 5 p.m. event because like back to balanced, right? So you're like flip flopping back and forth, and they had feedback from their customer base that it was like kind of annoying for everyone because everyone only wanted to play half the events, right? Um, so they, that's why they swap to this more like permanently casual structure. But we'll see where it goes from there. I, I don't know. I, I kind of miss the days of uh, the big P, like PTQ pre-release type things, where like you know one store would host or a few stores would get together and host like a huge pre-release, and you would just run sixteen-man events on demand, and they were just sealed. And like if you four-owed, you got uh, twelve or sixteen packs. I think I think it was sixteen packs. If you went three one, you got twelve. If you went three one, you got eight. And if you did worse than three one, then you got nothing. And then you would just like thirty dollars, and every subsequent event was twenty-five. You just play all day long, and we walk walk back or we drive back home with like two or three boxes in our hands, and life was good, right? Everyone's happy. The casuals can jam as many sealed events as they want. And the competitive people have enough cards that they actually can, you know, play the upcoming GP or PT that that's uh, you know happening in a few weeks. Yeah, I mean, th- those were a good time, but they pretty <laughs> clearly. Uh been moving away from that structure to be more store centric with like everything they're doing ptq to pptq right like wmcq uh qualification is just jam at your local event enough and maybe go to a gp so um that's something that in calgary when i was just talking about these gunslinger type events they were you know they'd been working on trying to partner with different stores so that like you know they they could they could kind of get like one bigger event but i guess like the way that the rules now work you're not supposed to um have like store a and store b who are not you know affiliated like pooling prize support and and stuff like that but but they were trying to do that and they had more of a bigger day i remember when i was gunslinging the main event that was like the noon or the the 11 but they had like a 9 a.m flight a 10 a.m to it a giant like a 11 a.m main flight which is five rounds and more top heavy then they had like you know, whatever event after that, another two at a giant. So they kind of like had all of these events planned during the day, kind of like what you're talking about with balanced uh, and competitive. But yeah, the times are changing away to the store structure for pre-releases. And, and you're right. I think it sucks. Like I came into magic because like I just started playing and across the street from my house is this community league called Alder Grove Community League. And my mom said that she saw a sign saying there's a magic pre-release the next weekend. And I was like, what the heck is a pre-release? So I just walk in like as this like 13 or 12 year old kid with my older brother and I'm looking around and yeah, it was amazing. Right. Like I miss those days. Uh, so I just, I think they're gone. I don't know. All right. Um, 
this this has been too friendly of a discussion. So I'm going to jump right into uh, a card battle <laughs> because you guys may have a bit of disagreement, and we'll ask the chat uh, which card they find better in a limited environment. So we got in the red corner, Metallic Mimic. Uh, they're both artifacts. Metallic Mimic is an artifact creature's shapeshifter. As Metallic Mimic enters the battlefield, choose a creature type. Metallic Mimic is the chosen type. In addition to its other types, each other creature you control, the chosen type, enters the battlefield with an additional plus one, plus one counter. And it starts as a... Man, I don't have it in front of me. <laughs> Doug, help me it, out. It's a Golem Piker. It's a two-mana, two-one. Okay, it's two-mana, two-one. Versus, in the blue corner, Intetered Express... Four mana, four four artifact vehicle trample. Whenever intended attacks, express attacks, put a plus one plus one counter on it. Crew one, uh, well, tap any number of creatures. You know what crew does, and uh, yeah. So, which card do you prefer between these two, Rob? That you feel strongly about if you were presented with a choice? Yeah. So, I mean, if this is we're talking about pick one, pack one here, right? So I actually, um, this came up uh, locally for me where uh, Vince and I were actually discussing this, and I argued heavily for Metallic Mimic being the right pick and the pick that I would take if I was like, it ha- you know, had opened the pack that I had cracked <laughs> and Metallic Mimic was sitting there alongside of uh, Untethered Express. And the reason that I would pick it is that the floor for Mimic is a lot higher than the express so the express is definitely a higher like a harder hitting and potentially higher impact card or has the potential to be a higher impact card since it's essentially a four mana attacking five five trampler which obviously is just completely insane right um that's a very strong card the thing that i i don't like about it is that and i found this out in kaladesh was um with the vehicle cards, you're very committed to wanting to attack every turn. If you put vehicles in your deck and you're not attacking every turn, you're really losing a lot of value because it's essentially like playing an equipment that you're not even equipping <laughs> that's usually not very good at blocking you're not using to its full potential, right? So Untethered Express isn't actually very good if you're on the back foot and you need to block, right? So if you're in a racing situation um, and they have a bunch of like you know, three mana, three twos, four mana, four fours and whatnot, they can easily be up in the race because it's costing you another card to activate this. And unless you have, you know, something very useless lying around like a servo, which, you know, does happen frequently, it's not always the case. Um, You know, you could easily be on the back foot and not be able to come back from it and have to make some very weird uh, plays. Um, The Mimic, on the other hand, is just you can just play it as a two-minute two-one. There's lots of tribal synergy hidden in the set. There's servos, there's dwarves, there's humans, there's aetherborn, there's Vidalkin, birds, cats, you know, elves, whatever. There's all kinds of different things to pick. So you can definitely find something in your deck where you'll have like five to eight of the same creature type where you can really benefit from the bonus. And the bonus is not insignificant. It puts a plus one, plus one counter on the creature when it comes into play for free. <laughs> this is just a, It's just a very good ability to have on a two-minute two-one. And with the blink effects that are in the set, especially in white, you can kind of reset that. So if you have a bunch of dwarves in your deck, you can play it named dwarf, play out your dwarves, blink it later named servos, and then start, you know, activating your revolt cards and, and playing like, you know, Stram's expertise and stuff that makes servos or or these kind of things, cracking your cog workers puzzle knot and, and that kind of stuff to get, you know, uh, some bonus there. So I, I don't know. I, I like it just because um, it does something all by itself. It doesn't ask anything of you, and there's kind of less blowout potential against you. Um, 
I just hate I hated tapping out for Renegade Freighter and my opponent killing it in combat. It was just uh, a very bad feeling, especially when they were able to uh, play a creature that turn and then like harness lightning it or something like that. You just you feel terrible, and Untethered Express can can kind of have that uh, same experience. Now, I mean, if the, if the Mimic's on the pack, I'm picking the Express. Like, don't don't get me wrong; it's very close, but <laughs> I'll take the Mimic if it's there. Ooh. The chat seems to think the Express is insane. So, Doug, <laughs> how insane is it? The, the Express is insane. Like, that card is nuts. I mean, okay, we're we're talking about a card that I feel like acts in games like Raging Ravine does, where sometimes it's not going to be immediately, like, the thing that's going to win you the game. But if it doesn't get answered eventually, it just gets so far out of control. And the fact it's only crew one, not crew two, makes it, significantly better because of cards like servos and the myriad of one power creatures that are just resting around in this set. Um, you know, even cards like I was activating it with uh, the one four that blinks stuff uh, to, to be able to activate it. Another crucial factor, and, and you literally brought up my point is you felt miserable with renegade freighter when they would harness lightning it before you attack. And I would feel that. And I would feel the same way when they would essence extraction it, but this thing has four toughness. That's like a pretty good number for what the removal is right now around this format. And yes, there's of course still removal. They just printed like a green uh, artifact removal that puts it on the bottom and a, a white instant artifact removal with revolt. So I'm not like oblivious to the fact that this can die at instant speed, but it just has this natural bonus extra toughness that before it even gets that attack trigger really kind of puts it um, over the top. I also think that unlike the freighter, the turn you play this on turn four, having a four, four blocker is pretty good and i mean i was blocking with it sometimes and yes sometimes they would then play a combat trick or whatever and and trade two for one or one for one but a lot of players will see that four four and just not attack into it like that was happening to me in my event where i drop it and they'd look at their you know two drop three drop that they played and they'd realize well the only option i have is bluffing and and i'm like a bluff checker personally so they just wouldn't attack and then i'd untap and now i'd be attacking with my five five trampler which they can like go for a double block and i can spill over for a damage or two or if i have a combat trick like let's not even get into that territory which happens a lot with all this like built to last type stuff that already existed so i think this this card's insane and when i start thinking about which rares i'm going to put it up against i gotta say the metallic mimic is not one of the cards that i'm even close to considering taking over it like don't get me wrong this card's fine um, two mana, two one that can that can make stuff bigger, and you describe some of the really good opportunities with servos. I think that it has, but the thing about this card is, if you're top, top decking it later in the game, you then need to top deck a specific creature type afterwards. It doesn't affect what's already in play. It only gives the creatures plus one plus one counters as they come in, um, which means that even once it's in play and then you play your make three servos, some of these same removal spells at instant speed that kill artifacts that we're talking about can just you know, nugget and it's gone on top of cards like shock or harness lightning or essence extraction. Um, and by itself, you know, without maybe getting more than one or two counters, like it's just fine. Right. Like even if I look at a two mana, two, one that puts a plus one plus one counter on one other creature, right. Kind of like the, the seed sculptor or whatever from the, the last set, like that's a, that's like a fine card, but it's not, you know, bomb level until we get the second or the third or the fourth counter from it. Then it starts to kind of get into this uh, level where I'm, I'm willing to look at it a little bit more than the freighter. So I personally think you're way off on this one. Um, kind of hope I'm in a draft pot at GP with you coming up. Uh, 
just so you can like ship me some some sweet sweet expresses it's <laughs> like the card's crazy and i don't know if you've attacked with it yet i don't know if you've had it yet because i got lucky i both had it and i drew it a few times like that card uh, i had it played against me multiple times and uh i wrecked them every time oh, there you go. <laughs> so i i, I mean here, here's where like i i guess more to my reasoning why i think the the two drop is better so um i think that on average, like these very powerful cards that require something of you, like the setup cost is higher, right? You need a creature, you need to kind of invest something, you need to be all in on a strategy where it makes more sense. That stuff is way, way better against a worse opponent. But when you're playing against a, an opponent that knows what they need to be good against to make sure that their uh, that their opponent is not able to take advantage of, of them, given their card pool, it's not... It's not as good. And depending on what your opponent does, um, they can psych you out with the vehicles into you not attacking or making an attack when you shouldn't uh, just because, you know, they're going to get into your head and then you're going to over... You, you have the opportunity, at least, to overthink and do something wrong. Whereas with the 2 minute 2 one, you really can't do anything wrong. You just play it. Then you start playing your creatures. All of your creatures that you play after that have a chance to be better. Um, so, I mean... I, I, I like it for that reason, and I also think that it's very hard to find impactful two drops where it actually matters. Like your your two drop, if you played on turn two, it actually matters, and your opponent like needs to remove it. It's a very rare thing to find, and finding impactful four drops is not that much. It, it's not very difficult, especially in Kaladesh. Like how how much better do you think um, the freighter or the express is over Pima Outrider? Like do you think it's like it way better, or are they like reasonably close and like if you interchange them uh in a deck that was playing forests that likely at the end of the day it probably wouldn't actually make any difference at all i mean i hear what you're saying about impactful two drops versus four drops i just don't see this one as as the culprit like i i just see a goblin piker with a little bit of upside i mean i can think of so many scenarios i'd rather be top decking the one two that just puts a plus one plus one counter on other cards like it just feels like this is the the card you always want on turn two to four maybe like in that range and not after and uh yeah i'm not i'm not about this life just give me the express i'll take it let's go like (laughs) (laughs) rob uh, clarify your position again because i think you said and someone in chat mentioned that you said you would still pick the express over it no, no, no. Sorry, okay. I, I would, I would pick the mimic over it. If the express was in the pack and the mimic wasn't in the pack, I would obviously pick the express. The express is still very good. <laughs> I'm just saying, given the option of the two of them, I te- like my drafting style is to tend to lean towards cards that cost, uh, cost less and ask less of you to be good. That's, I don't know. That, that's like that's my baseline. So with every pick, I'm trying to do that. So if there was like a a five mana removal spell versus a four mana removal spell. Uh, at, I get that. That's a terrible example. I don't know. Like, if, if there's a four drop that's good, like Pima Outrider versus Thriving Rhino, I'm gonna like tend to take Thriving Rhino if they're you know close to to power level, just because um, I, I like to kind of um, be uh, not top heavy with my mana curve. And there, there's lots of four and five drops that are interchangeable. That like at the end of the day, their replacement level, uh, people overestimate. You know what what the actual effect is. Okay, got you. Um, I, I saw this uh, website by by tweeted by Marshall. I don't know if you guys have seen this before. This is the first time I've seen something called draftaholicsanonymous.com. 
and I think it's basically they they show you a pack one pick one war like we've been just doing, and they tabulate the results into a table. And in first place, a Johnny and Yielding uh, way ahead in first place, and we have according to the masses casual or competitive and tethered express is significantly ahead of metallic mimic and i just wanted to, doug to chime in here because i'm going to read off four three under uncommons that the public have basically viewed as higher than mimic and if doug likes them as much as the express so we're gonna need like more than just the card names for the record we're, we're not right, in the right. memorization zone quite yet so, <laughs> how the public has ranked uh, the uncommons are starts with Untethered Express at one. They have it as the number one in common, followed by Fatal Push. That we know Ooh. what it all does. Yeah. So that the third the old, one, forty dollar uncommon foil, right? Or is it fifth? <laughs> Keeps going up. Third one, Scrapper Champion. So it's the uh, one red, three colorless human artificer, two two double strike. When he comes into play. Uh, you get two energy counters, and when it attacks, you may pay two energies if you do put a plus one, plus one counter on it. So three, three, double strike right away. And the next one is Rich Scale Tusker. It's a double green, three colorless beast, five, five. When Rich Scale Tusker enters the battlefield, put a plus one, plus one counter on each creature you control. And actually, I'll just read the, a common that they have pretty high, which is Derek Demolition. Double black and two colorless, four mana, sorcery, destroy target creature or vehicle. So, Doug, what do you think about the red card, the champion, and, and the tusker? Do you love them just as much, or do you think the public are, is overrating these cards? No, that red card, the double striker, um, I, I hadn't like fully memorized and read the spoiler uh, before I went, and, and I was playing the third round uh, at the 2-0 table, and my opponent just wrench me with that card like that card it seems sweet like for its cost i do like that it comes in as 2-2 and when it attacks that it gets bigger because cards like shock exist um but i definitely think the freighter is for me better than it especially if we're talking pack one pick one when we're not just objectively talking like you've drafted both of these two cards or whatever which one's better uh because it's colorless the tusker um this is one of those cards for me i think when rob was describing um how when you want like a lower cost card or a higher cost card, like uh, for me, the higher cost card needs to really be impactful. Like the, the five, four trample from the last set that gains you five life. This ridge scale Tusker is good, obviously, but there's going to be some board States where it's insane and some board States where it's fine. Um, so I, I'm taking the four, four over it. I do think though, knowing my draft style, I probably would consider taking either of the two black removal spells over the, the freighter, like I'm huge into the freighter, but having like a really good removal spell, especially that like common one, the the four mana just kill a creature or kill a vehicle, like that's crucial because you know other people are going to be beating you down with expresses or or that mobile garrison card. Like maybe that card's not as good as I think it is, but that card was just doing phenomenal work in the matches against me, being able to untap other creatures or artifacts like the icy manipulator artifact, being able to like tap something, tack with the garrison, untap the icy manipulator thing and say go to be able to retap. Um, so I, I think I'm where I land is like, maybe I'd take the black removal spell uh, over the express some of the time, but I, I'm basically taking express over everything else. Okay. But the, the more important question to end it before I bring it to Rob, do you take all of these cards before the mimic? 
Oh yeah, not close. Yeah, like literally <laughs> all of them. Even that five-five green uh, creature. Like, come on, this is just a goblin piker. This is a two-one. Give me bronze sable. Like, I'm fine with that. Bronze sable. <laughs> I'll take my cat. Like, I, I basically I'm gonna play this card. Call it creature type cat. Have no cats in my deck. I might as well have a bronze sable. Just it's got a rare symbol. Like, come on. Jam all the wily bandars. Uh, Rob, what do you think about the, this collection of cards that I mentioned, which which people will see a lot because they're considered the top in commons and common? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's pretty close to correct, probably. I think I would put Ridgescale Tusker for me right now above everything. Um, the card uh, just has the highest upside where, like, if you play it and have any reasonable like just almost any board presence at all, it's going to be very hard for you to not win that game. And if you have, if like, if you have parity, which isn't, it, it seems like it's very common, uh, at least from my experience uh, watching people play, anyways. Then it's it's just completely uh, completely nuts. Like if you have a bunch of servos, just make them two twos. That becomes very very good. Um, the red card, I think, is probably a little bit uh, overrated, just because. It dies, so it's like a, a lot of mana to die to essentially every removal spell uh, in both sets. Um, I think that the black common is probably rated correctly as the best common uh, and contends with everything. And I think I would also take um, my my draft like my draft pick order is probably the Ridge Scale Tusker into Fatal Push into um, into the the Express. Um, if I had to. If I had to put myself somewhere right now, okay. um, where does the mimic fall? The mimic? I mean, I, so I, I would pick the mimic over everything but the 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 tusker. Over everything but the tusker, dog. He just <laughs> loves putting plus one plus one counters on other creatures. Like, that's all. No, I no, no, no. Here, here's the reason. I didn't notice this. Is like um, the the Ridgecale tusker is green, and if you remember, green is completely nuts in Kaladesh. So if you happen to get in and make a stance on it, you should... I mean, you have the highest likelihood of getting rewarded with commons from pack three, and I think that uh, lots of people will undervalue that uh, in the beginning, and I should be able to profit nicely from that until they figure it out, and then I'll have to figure out what other draft strategies are good other than just, like, slamming every sweet green card that comes by me. And, like, the Mimic might as well be green because you can just play it as creature-type fern tree or palm tree or creature-type Douglas fir tree. Who knows, right? Creature-type servo, Doug. Creature-type servo. I'm going to make all the 2-2 servos, and then I'm going to cast Inspired Charge. It's going to be beautiful. <laughs> it's going to be exactly like Kaladesh with different card names. <laughs> um, before we move on from, from this sort of a limited clinic, I guess, uh, one of the questions that I always see ass a lot or at least in my circle or something that i wonder a lot every time we start man my hair's going way up high here uh what's sealed is whether or not to, to play first or, or draw and i think it was my first experience of someone or reading an article of someone telling me that drawing was better and even remember one of the first channel fire fireball seminars that they held uh, was on a core set where it was Ben Stark and LSV was giving it, and Ben Stark said, you know, you go second. And he was adamant about it because of the power level of the set, because it's really hard to sculpt a good aggro deck uh, in sealed. So he, he preferred to, to go second. And I find myself 
taking that concept too far uh, in, in the past couple of seals that I have done, except for specific sets where the mechanics made it obvious that you should probably go first, whether it be Bloodthirst, you'd want to be first. There's the Renown one where you really want it to be turn two, have the renowned uh, white drop and make it a 3-3 right away. Uh, Doug, have you experimented with, with that play draw or have you been mostly a, a play type person and, and you don't think too much because most of the time it's correct to play? No, I've been a huge advocate for a long time about drawing first and sealed. You know, this is a talk that I have with uh, the guys that I prepare with Um even when I'm playing sealed aggro decks, I like drawing first. And a couple of the reasons that I often quote are um, your your curve doesn't look the same as draft. You're not eight or nine, two drops, eight or nine, three drops, some removal. Like your curve is kind of like three, three to five, maybe in the two drop or six if you're lucky and like a few threes and some fours, some fives. You're going to play your bombs up top. Um, the other thing that I always say in these situations is, whatever your opponent's either best removal or best like bombs are, they're just going to be that color. So you know you're going to be going up against removal or bombs at some point. So depriving them a card is is really important, I think, because uh, that's one of the ways that they can beat your curve out. And another point that I often bring up is just mana considerations. Uh, often when you're drafting a deck, you have a lot of these choices between two comparably reasonable cards, but one is easier on your current mana. And, and I find I have a lot more 10-7 decks in, in draft because I'm drafting one predominant color, whereas in sealed, it's usually more balanced, I find. So these are all reasons why I've been a big advocate about draw first. Um, that being said, you cannot just take it as gospel and always do it. So for Kaladesh and for Aether Revolt, especially, I feel like right now I'm advocating play first for this format. Um, a couple of the reasons are like the tempo Rob was even talking about when he was making his uh, attempted argument against the, the pain train that when you are too far behind, the card doesn't do as much. Well, when you can just come out ahead with a card like that you know your opponent plays their vehicle back on turn four to your vehicle on turn four you get that first attack in like you can just turn the tides um i also think cards like revolt the more turns you have to kind of get into that board state where you're able to lose a creature in combat and get your revolt trigger off is really important um and because this is such a colorless like artifact heavy set i'm finding my mana is a lot more balanced usually uh, so going first doesn't punish me as much because I might have eight artifacts in some decks or or whatever filling in those gaps. And I can kind of make these uh, changes where I'm cutting some two drop that might uh, be you know important to have a, a certain threshold of two drops. Because there's cards like this rare bronze sable that I can just put in as just a random two drop to, to fill the slot. So um, I'm, I'm a play kind of guy in this format, but I'm normally always advocating for for draw when you can. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, I think Kaladesh uh, was definitely play first in draft and sealed. Like you just uh, you don't want to be on the back foot of like a Rhino or like a Thriving Grubs or a Renegade Freighter or something like that. It's very hard to 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 get out of that once uh, once your opponent gets um, gets set up with really any of those three cards, <laughs> start getting out of control. Aether Revolt, I uh, in sealed, I actually would advocate for drawing. In the games I saw, anyways, no one was really just like going nuts, curving out into like an unstoppable board position. I mean, like you could definitely go against someone that got like kind of lucky, right? And and got like the good Kaladesh cards, and where they were able to cave uh, curve out into a very strong uh, aggro start. But there seems to be a lot less of that potential 
um, in Aether Revolt, and stuff like Revolt isn't really, you know, a thing that gets like triggered on curve all the time, and you, you know, you kind of need to play off curve and a little bit weird um, to to get the most value out of those cards. So, I mean, every game I played really, you know, went long unless someone got mana screwed, and I felt. Uh, very good being on the draw. Now, did I draw when I was in the pre-release? No, because I didn't <laughs> figure this out, obviously, while I was playing my first tournament. But by the end of it, I was uh, I was fine uh, losing the die roll, uh, being on the draw in game one, winning handily, and then being on the draw again in game two, and, uh, and <laughs> being up the extra card and winning handily again. So... Um, I don't know. Yeah, there's just there's a lot of things to do with your mana late in the game too, especially in in the white decks. It seems so. Um, I don't know. I think you just you want that extra card. You want to be able to make sure you can hit your land drops. I think hitting your land drops is very important. I don't think you can get as punished for being on the draw uh, with the Aether Revolt cards that you can with the uh, with the Kaladesh stuff. The Kaladesh stuff is like really above rate, and the Aether Revolt stuff seems like it's kind of um, as expected. The power level is a little bit lower. Hmm, that's really interesting. Have you made that mistake in the past, Rob, where you've been wrong on, on player draw in, in other sets? Yeah, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Have you ever regretted a draft pick at all? That's like <laughs> old, old A-team joke. Jay Bush, yeah. he has never regretted a draft pick. So. That was, that was uh, the throwback. That was one of the best questions anyone's ever asked me. Um yeah, I don't know. It, it's very difficult, um, and uh, I think that like my default stance is to play first when I don't know what my opponent's deck is. Um, I'll even do that in decks where I think I should draw, just in case they have like the nut white red aggro deck or whatever. I just don't want to like lose game one uh, because like you're more likely to lose against that white red aggro deck uh, if you selected draw than you would lose because you're playing and you should have drawn against like any other random archetype or whatever right so i think um i like to be safe there but once i know what my opponent's playing if they're like a green black value deck or like some blue black artifact based deck or something like that um they have these types of decks in the format are like just red black like all removal i just like kind of want the you know i'd rather take the card than than try and jump them on tempo unless my deck is like all in one drop two drop three drop inspired charge then obviously you know you want the play because you just want to kill them on turn four but um yeah, I guess that's where I met. That was kind of a gray answer, but <laughs> it's a very, it's a very great subject. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just like it when they, like I said, when they made it easy with like all these good renowned cards, with all these bloodthirst cards, where it's like if you're second, you are screwed with uh, many, many typical draws. It doesn't even have to be like a nut draw. All right, we'll just move move on from from all the limited. I did want to uh, bring up finish off the topic we did last week because I completely forgot when we ended the show uh, when we were talking about the bannings, which was a a tweet. um, I didn't have time to read Sam Stodd's article, but one of the tweets behind why they decided to ban, uh, I'll just read the tweet. It said, a blue-white flash was the strongest deck in standard and by our data had only one sub-50% matchup, black-red aggro, which was 49%. Hashtag Watsy staff. And Pat Cox asks, where does the uh, data come from? Moto? And Sam Stott says, yes. So they're basing it off MTGO 
and I really completely blank because I really wanted to ask both of you your opinions on this, knowing that some of the best players do not play on MTGO, knowing that the reasons that people own certain decks on MTGO are, are sometimes for financial reasons or for maybe for speed uh, in terms of wanting to finish ga games, leagues as fast as possible to get that profit and join another league. So I'll start with you, Doug. Uh, what do you think about this, like using MTGO as the data uh, to, to say that, oh, this deck is definitely broken and only has one bad matchup? I mean, I don't really advocate for using MTGO in any capacity, personally. No, I'm just joking. I just have my gripes about MTGO. Um, yeah, you can't, you just can't have that be your data set, in my opinion. I remember there was a modern season I was testing in, and I was looking at my deck on MTGO and looking at my sideboard and staring at my core firewalkers and looking at my, you know, overabundance of destructive, like, revelries in the mirror match, and I'm realizing I'm so skewed skewed in my deck prep right now because I'm just trying to beat Mono Red because that's what I'm playing against every round because it's MTGO, exactly as you're describing. Um, I think standard might not happen as much uh, as modern, as far, and I'm talking the card prices implication you brought up where um, players are just buying cheaper decks. Um, but I think you can put some credence into these matchups if you're looking at, you know, if they have the the ability to kind of break down blue white within a few cards and green black within a few cards, then it kind of doesn't really matter if there's a ton more blue white, because all that's going to do is it's going to mean there's a bunch of blue white mirror matches that they're not necessarily, you know, factoring in. So, so you can drive some data, but if you weren't able to look at a whole uh, data set and you only focused on the good players, you wouldn't have enough data because you know, when, when are the, the best players playing against the other best players? They're, they're doing it at the Pro Tour, which, you know, you look at, but you can't just base all of your choices on the Pro Tour and, you know, some feature matches at, at GPs. So I, I do think it's important to look at, at all the data, um, but you have to take it with a grain of salt, you know. And when I read that tweet, I kind of laughed because, yeah, I'm, I'm always advocating blue-white on this podcast. I'm saying it's the best deck and all that. But when I even read that, like, it just has no bad matchups, I'm kind of laughing that that just is wrong you know that that can't be that that can't just possibly be ubiquitously true i don't think so i i know i didn't give a very solid answer i'm kind of like half pro using the data and half pro not but but that's how i think you have to look at it you, you can't just look at numbers as facts you have to interpret them you have to understand context and you have to um, breathe other factors into it like who's playing the matches right um, give some things heavier weighting than others like it's there's no easy formula and, and i think that boiling it down that that simply could have just been a pr move because it can say well we have these numbers uh, there could be other things at play like was mentioned uh, in our last cast like the cat combo coming in they're not just going to say well reflector major was too strong so we had to they can just throw some of the true numbers that they have but i i don't take it as gospel yeah, since Doug was arguing both sides, he stole all of my points. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, I, I can take a hard stance here that I believe in. So I think they should definitely use the MTGO data. For one, they have the data. They have access to the data. The data includes thousands or tens of thousands of matches that they can analyze. And 
why do I think the data, like, I, I saw the pros arguing, like, uh, you know, on Twitter, oh, you know, th- this data is, like, not actually correct. Like, I could play a, a green-black deck that can beat blue-white consistently, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, so can I. And I firmly believe that that, that should be the default case. But the thing is, the data from Moto is actually more closely um, a, a function of, like, what your FNM is going to experience, right? So if the local players are going to see that everyone should just be playing blue-white and it definitely benefits the average player that's, like, you know, from, even from not very good to just before they start getting good to be playing blue-white, that that's still bad, right? And that's the majority of the player base that's playing tournaments. It's not, you know, it's not the GP player. It's not the Pro Tour player. They're, like, a very small, very, very small subset of the community, right, which we see with these stupid casual prizing pre-releases that are popping up everywhere. <laughs> you know, the stores don't really care about us. So um, do, I, do I think they made the right decision? I mean, if the, if the people, if they did find this and it's correct, if the data, first of all, if the data is correct and blue-white does have such an insane matchup against everything and its only bad matchup is red-black uh, aggro and it's not even really a bad matchup, it's just like literally a coin flip, then they probably did make, uh, you know, the right bannings and, and the right decisions for the for like the average tournament or FNM player. Um, I mean, like, what else would they use for the data? Like, they can't use FNM data. People don't submit deck lists. You don't know what archetype you're on. Um, you can't really use the Pro Tour or GP data because uh, it doesn't represent, you know, well um, the average player. Which I, I so I, I think they use the only thing they could use, which is which is Moto data, and it allows them to just have thousands upon thousands of match results um, where they can figure this out. And the fact that like after thousands and thousands of match results, on average, blue-white was just crushing things is probably something they need to respond to. So I think that banning Reflector Mate actually solves the problem. No. <laughs> I think they just needed to ban Copter. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they disguised the Reflector Mage ban as being because blue-white was so strong when, when, in fact, like we all definitely know it was, it was due to the copycat deck just being like completely um, out of control. Uh, if Reflector Mage is legal. But, I mean, they can disguise it however they want. I'm sure that truth will come out eventually. Hmm. All right. Um, I, I don't know... Yeah, I don't know what, what they can. Uh, ultimately, I, I don't know my final opinion on, on what they should use overall. But I'm with Doug. It should be part of the whole data, but just to take it with a grain of salt. Uh, on to our last topic of the night. We've got uh, interesting posts uh, by the new president of Wizards of the Coast. Uh, he was hired not too long ago, I think last summer. And he posted a uh, little, I guess, press release called Making Moves. Uh, Chris Cox, president of Wizards of, uh, of the Coast, said um, briefly that there were a few points in there uh one of the key ones are we are reimagining digital versions of magic and and other wizards games and talked about how we will make your wizards experiences more efficient connected and convenient um from getting matched in a big tournament to tracking your achievements to simply getting friends together for game night there's a lot that goes into a good experience with a game outside of the game itself revamped technology team led by longtime wizard 
Aaron Goosby will be focused on connecting these kinds of in-store and online interactions so you will have cohesive and connected experiences with our games. There are just some of the, these are just some of the changes happening in Wizards of the Coast as we continue our mission to bring people together through their shared love of games. And then they talked about how they would be bringing their characters to other worlds, other games like uh, to D&D, like MMO mentioned a lot of stuff in there to, to be excited about. Are you hyped about this, uh, Doug, when you read this? I'm, I'm super hyped, personally. I am over the moon about this announcement. Uh, and for me, it's, it's because of the whole theme they're talking about of connecting and trying to engage more people. Like, listen, Magic the Gathering is my life. I mean, I want to say that I'm so much more than magic because I have other interests and I, I'm in university and uh, I, I act and I'm trying to go on tour to act in a, in a musical theater company. But magic is like this, this thing that has just been such an amazing part of my life. And the part that's been so hard in my adult life that I found is sharing it with others. And I'm not talking about sharing it because I'm afraid of judgment or being a nerd, right? I wear magic proudly. Um, I have people talk to me recently about, I have a tattoo on my wrist of waves and people ask me about my tattoo. And I say, oh, I was at this pro tour in Hawaii recently playing a Magic the Gathering tournament. That's like how I communicate what this uh, tattoo is. Like magic is a huge part of me, but it's so hard to share with people I've shown people magic online and it's a joke. I'm sorry. It's just the software when you're, when you're looking at these other games out there like Hearthstone and how it looks and the crispness of it and how it flows, it's just not like realistic. And I have like two coworkers at work and the one just recently taught his girlfriend Hearthstone and she loves it and she dreams about it and is playing so much Hearthstone. And I want to like show them magic, but, it just doesn't have the same pull to it. And so like I showed them uh, eternal and and now he's like, this game is super sweet too. Cause it's just an easy, you know, way to just jump in and immerse yourself and learn. And uh, when I talk about the digital, uh, sorry, the, the real life store and connectivity experience as well, it kind of feels like there's this, old hat group, like people who've been doing it for a while and playing it for a while and they stick together and they know where they're going. And maybe it's because they have different group chats or they have, you know, we use WhatsApp in Edmonton, but for newer people, like getting into the scene and kind of getting into connected and knowing what's going on, there's nothing there. Like we tried to make our own Facebook group where we put up calendars and um, a local store owner really worked hard to have like an event listing and, and this and that, because it's so hard to find that information. So when I read all of this and I read about the digital version of magic, the gathering um, and a revamp and, and reading that they've brought some industry talent from places like uh, Direwolf, um, valve cryptic studios, Warner brothers, et cetera, Bioware, uh, I get hyped because I want this thing that is such a huge part of my life to be easier to share with people and engage with people and not just be this thing that I do that I kind of do under wraps because it's just hard to bring people in. So I'm pumped about all this and some of this other stuff that's happened surrounding this announcement. Um, I'm, I'm, happy about I, I don't say that like in a in a mean way but like I'm, I'm pumped that there's change happening and that we're trying something because I don't know with the digital age we're going into if this kind of stuff isn't going to happen I'm just worried about the future yeah I I almost completely disagree I guess um so 
I mean, I, I agree that I would I would definitely be excited if this announcement contained any useful piece of information that makes me think something interesting is actually happening. It's just a bunch of fluff. And I've seen a lot of companies write this kind of stuff. And when they write it, it like there's nothing concrete in here, right? Which means that they have nothing concrete to show, which means that they're not doing anything. They actually don't know what their future holds because if they knew they would tell you because they'd be excited about it and they want you to be excited about it so what does he say we're doing some weird stuff with digital and magic there's like a game studio and we're working with them and we're really excited about the future uh okay cool like why can't you talk about what magic online is going to be like because you literally don't know what you're going to do and that's the problem and he says the same thing about the you know the, the other things we're doing some connected stuff it's going to be sweet we're going to have uh planeswalkers in in other games and you're going to be able to experience it in dd d and and mobas and and whatever it's just like show me something because like this is just like oh hey i have a bunch of resources and i just spread them all out and it sounds like they're almost doing like a, an announcement for the sake of gathering marketing data so they want to see how the general community responds to this stuff. Where like if we're all like, oh wow, you know, reimagining digital versions of magic sounds so stupid, and that's the consensus, then they're gonna use that and think about like, okay, well, maybe we should just focus on making Moto not a piece of garbage. Then like players actually just want paper magic on the computer that doesn't suck. Like just make the program not suck. You know, make it look good, make it clean, and make it work properly. It's not that hard, right? But it, I don't know. It's just it's just a bunch of garbage. Like I would have been so much happier if they said, "Hey, we're reimagining what digital means for Magic Online, and what we're doing is we're going to add card animations, and there's going to be you know we're contracting like a some sort of like like a audio crew or whatever, so that the sounds don't sound like they came out of like a 1970s movie, and like you know we're going to change the graphics so they actually look like they came out of you know the current decade." Like these are like concrete things. It's like, okay, cool. Like I can imagine in my head the results of their words and what that effect is going to be on Moto, even if they don't have something to explicitly show us right now. But with this, I have no idea what this means. Like, are they going to rebuild Hearthstone and put a bunch of magic characters in it? Are they going to design a new game? Like we know that the Watsi people are very good at designing new games. They've designed all kinds of card games with different command uh, mechanics that work different ways. Like what, what are they up to? It's just so nondescript <laughs> that I can't be excited about it. I don't know. It's it's weird. I think this is a bunch of nothing, just like, you know, where the movie's at. They said, we're making a movie. You should be excited. Okay. What's the movie about? What are the characters in the movie? Like, what's the storyline going to be? Get me excited about it. Like, keep me updated. I mean, the people that are invested in magic are really invested. And, you know, the, Wizards knows that. They know we want more information. So, I don't know. Updates like this just get me tilted. Um, it, it makes me lose faith. I like it. I, I, I like uh, pissed off uh, Rob. <laughs> uh, I think when they mentioned Digital Next and Warren Smith uh, in the chat mentioned a worried of mine before when, when I had a lot of cards on MTGO. Rob, is is it worrying you a bit that, like, um, for those of us who have played Diablo 3 since the beginning, where they worked really hard on this auction house where they had people be able to buy and sell each other items really easily and then it screwed up the game economy so much that they even though they worked really hard and it was like a feature that they really wanted to to share with the public to, to brag about they had to scrap it and here we are i would every time they they mention this new 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 stuff and then we're seeing how in every industry 
uh, would be like Netflix and other stuff like that, where a subscription model is what is coming to the top. It always worries me for my collection, at least. It doesn't worry me that that it will change to that. And, and a lot of us has been worried since that Digital Next uh, announcement, but nothing has been done or, or maybe they're too scared that like a lot of people are making their living via MTGO bots and stuff like that. What, what do you think, Rob? What, what's the future? And or do you share the same fears as, as me when it comes to this uncertainty? I feel, I feel the exact same way. <laughs> um, so I, I have uh, more, I guess I've invested more time and effort into Moto over the last six months to a year, just because of like my preparation for the GP. And I knew I was queued for the PT, which was, you know, I needed to know how to play standard. So I was playing a lot more standard. I converted a lot more of what is usually just like, um, like a bank of packs and tickets into a standard collection so that I could keep up to date with standard and, and brew and build and, uh, and, you know, try and do well at the PT, which I kind of, you know, bummed out there, but <laughs> it is what it is. So my standard collection is like very good. I can kind of go, I have almost all of the decks. Uh, I can go in almost any direction after I figure out, you know, what's going to be good with the bandings and, and either revolt uh, releases. But I can assure you that after, um, after I'm done with that and that season's over, uh, if we don't know anything else about magic D- digital next or what these like random reimagining digital experiences on on magic online mean i will be exiting moto (laughs) almost assuredly or like scaling down to a level where i feel comfortable getting completely uh you know blown out by them you know crashing the economy is which it could be like you know your two two to five thousand dollar collection or whatever you happen to have could go like straight to zero dollars overnight on their announcement right if they go hey we're just going to release all the cards to everyone for ten dollars a month and that's going to be that's going to be what's up. And then you can play in tournaments, and you can win bonus bucks that you can use in in whatever like the Watsi store to buy plush dolls and pop figures or whatever uh, going forward. Then that's like all the cards just go to. Like, there's going to be no more redemption. All that stuff is gone. Um, then your your collection is is worth nothing. And I feel like they almost have to go that way, which is why um, I anticipate getting out very soon. Uh, but. I feel like I can profit just a little bit more off standard <laughs> before it goes. I have a bunch of GPs coming up, so I need to I need to test for them. And there's really no better way to test than to test on Moto, testing on Cockatrice and Magic Workstations, just like um, the like the literal worst. I don't know if anyone's ever done that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like it's a good thing that they gave you this uh, nondescript announcement, so you can actually get out. Hey, rather than just like crashing it in 24 hours. It's funny how stuff like that works, right? <laughs> I mean, someone's getting screwed no matter what, Doug. Like, it's not like if I get out that, you know, everyone's a winner. No, whoever I sold my car well, is getting I, totally effed. <laughs> I, I understand that. But, I mean, this happens. We've seen it happen in our world with anything that's collectible-based. You know, they're very volatile. I mean, it's just the way it works. And we're collecting digital objects. It's it's like our choice to be to be spending this money i've heard of people spending thousands and thousands of dollars on everquest items and then out of nowhere the game just dies and everything is worthless like this doesn't freak me out too much because anyone who's investing in this has to know that that's just an an option at some point is it's just going to crash and you know, it kind of reminds me of the movie The Big Shorts, and people are saying, sell, just get out, sell your houses. Like, market's going to crash, but no one wants to listen, so they all get screwed. Like, I don't know. Just uh, 
I'm ready to embrace it. You know, um, some of my friends who had pretty big like DVD collections and, you know, we're doing all that are now kind of tilted that they'd spend so much money on that. And they just have these boxes that are just like bogging up their house. Cause they can just pay eight bucks a month on Netflix and get all the exact same movies they had or, or whatever. So the world's changing. I'm not worried about it. I, I don't really want to have much left on moto soon either. Um, I own quite a lot of modern cards and plans to get out and, I'm excited for the future and the way that you're describing like the, the model of these like announcements that don't mean a lot. I think that if nothing happens in within, you know, six months and we don't get anything concrete, that's when I'll start to be upset. But we've seen this model before from big companies like Apple that will just put out this teaser and people are like, this is stupid. We want more. But the whole point is it gets them talking. It gets the buzz going around. It has the conversations flowing. And then the big announcements that follow happen and they do their big, slow, stupid reveal. And all these people are chomping at the bit and they don't know why because they're just feeding into the culture of wanting to know. And I don't have a huge problem with that personally. Um, It works. It's effective. And from his background, he comes from, uh, you know, those other industries. So when I see something like this, where he's putting his name on saying things are going to change. And then we see a major shakeup in staff, whether that be firing or quitting, we don't know, but it is very clearly significant, a huge change. And it's showing that, you know, either that the leadership's direction is not matching with um, former uh, leadership's direction, or it's just, Hey, this is my direction. You're gone. Either way. I'm pumped about it because to me, it's showing something tangible Um, I'm okay to wait as long as things come. And yeah, of course, I'll change my mind if in six months or a year, we've heard nothing like from this guy who just made this making moves now. So yeah, that'll piss me off. But until then, this is fine. Where's the movie at, Doug? Like they announced that like a year ago or something. (laughs) We heard literally nothing about it. Like, why do you expect to change? This is also not like an Apple announcement. And Apple doesn't really do teasers very very much they have like a huge reveal all at once samsung's more the company that's doing that like ah oh, what's this is the next big thing what are you gonna see and they'll show you like the corner of a phone or whatever but you know what it is it's a phone you just don't know what's <laughs> in, like you know what you're getting i'm gonna get a phone okay cool i know what a little bit of it looks like i don't know exactly the specs are but i mean if i do just a a tiny bit of reading I will because like, you know, the the rest of the companies are using, they're all using the same chipsets. They're all using the same hardware. It's not difficult to figure out what's going to happen. It's like the differences in phones is like, is it going to be five inches, 5.2 inches or 5.3 inches uh, or something like that. So it's not, it's not really a big deal. But, but they said like the words, you know, an MMO, and that's something we want. What about augmented reality? Like, it's the same thing as like, oh, it's a phone, right? We just don't know if it's going to be, like you said, a big phone, a small phone. Is it a waterproof phone? Is it uh, no headphone jack phone? Like, the, the details you're chomping at the bit for, we don't know about yet. But they are giving us something. This is not a straight zero, like you're saying. We Come don't on. know if it's even a phone. It's obviously not a phone. I'll tell you that I, much right now. No. <laughs> I know, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What is it going to be? I hope it's both an MMO and an augmented reality D&D game. I hope that's it. No, I, I just, I think overreacting. Yeah, the movie thing is easy to throw around because that was in the, the previous era, right? Like this, this shakeup of getting Chris as the president is just things are different, okay? And he's not the one who is making the movie announcements. He's not the one that 
I think really butchered the process of how it works in the movie industry, the way that you want to, to set things up before you give too much information. And, you know, you want to start working towards your cast or, or your full script and things like that before you really start, you know, teasing that information out. And if you even follow, you know, how movie teasers happen where there's these small things and then bigger things and then full trailers, like the magic screwed that up. Yeah. They're not a great movie (laughs) launching company. They're not okay. Right. And do I forgive them? No, it was awful. Like I'm a big, I'm a big proponent of if you really screw up bad, like you probably deserve to get fired. You know, if, if your product that you're putting out is garbage, well, it's on you kind of thing. And, and maybe, you know, if they decided to fire the entire uh, people that were a part of them, the movie department, I don't know if I'd be upset about that because it's the industry, but I just, I don't see what Chris has done wrong yet. And, uh, and I think these things take time. Transition takes time. He came in, he's, he's making an announcement. So he's putting his name on this. If we don't see anything like, he screwed up pretty big by by making a statement like this. So I don't know. I'm I hope I hope that you are right. <laughs> uh, we'll finish up with uh, something you guys uh, told me that you you may have more than than a few words on. I, I personally don't. Uh, on the same news, on the same day that the news broke out about this main, making news post that uh, the new president Chris Cox. Uh, make as he created uh, the digital game studio the same day, Worth Wolpert, who was uh, the director of Magic Digital Studio, which included Magic Online and Duels of the Planeswalker, he announced on Twitter that um, he uh, was leaving WotC, that uh, after 16 plus plus years, I think, uh, he said that uh, he was moving on. And um, when I check the Reddit thread, and a lot of people are saying that he's done a very terrible job, um, but it is funny that he's embraced the hashtag blame worth. And I don't know if it comes from Kenji Numatanami from Twitch, but but he hasn't pra- embraced that. For me, as an outsider, I just know that like he's supposedly the head. I just don't know. I'm not, you know, I'm too. I guess hesitant to put all the blame for all the uh, screw-ups with Magic Online over the years on them. But but you guys are not. So, Doug, uh, what do you have to say about, about this? I think Doug oh. left us. He got, oh. sick. he got sick of this. That's how, that's how sad he is about Worth Wolfhart leaving. I got so excited that I accidentally <laughs> pressed the wrong button and just dropped the call. Um, no. Okay, so this is what I was alluding to early. And I want to be careful with how I word this because... I in no way am like enraged and thinking, you know, like Worth should have been fired or he should have quit. Like, I don't even know this, the situation. I don't know what happened. Um, I, I don't wish any ill will like at all, at all towards Worth. And I do also believe that he was extremely passionate about Magic Online and really wanted it to succeed, really wanted to put in the effort to make it happen. And for those things, I'm actually very thankful um, because I believe like in these tech industries, you know, often what will happen is it will take multiple iterations before we get to uh, the iteration that is, that is solid, right? The, the final product. Like even if you watch where we talked about Apple earlier before they got to the like Apple of today, it took the company having some huge fractures multiple times and huge issues and, and all that. So with all that to say, I personally believe, like I said, that if, you know, if the product is not performing your job's at stake in this industry. And, and, and maybe that's, 
you know, not that they're saying I'm saying that he got fired. Maybe, maybe it was too much pressure. Maybe it wasn't. I, I don't know. But my point is, I'm happy to have change. I'm happy moving forward uh, to see to see a new passing of the torch. Um, I can only hope whoever is the new head is even half as passionate about it as Worth was, because it's clear to me by reading his Twitter, he's passionate as all heck about Magic Girls. He wouldn't have put up with as much as he did. You don't just put up with that crap and and have people saying hashtag blame Worth all day and embracing it if you don't really care about the product. So for that, I'm very thankful for him for. Um, but I'm just so turned off to Magic Online that I want a change so bad and and whatever steps have to get taken for that change is, is kind of what I'm advocating for. So um, that's kind of where I'm at with it. Final thoughts, Rob? Um, Rob? <laughs> I'm on mute. Damn it! Um, I, I think he, he deserved to get let go, and um, it's, it's pretty clear uh, why. I mean, he is or was <laughs> the director of of Magic Online or the the producer or product owner or whoever they end up describing it internally but Magic Online was his baby he's responsible for it he's responsible for ensuring that it meets its quality that it has the right features that includes feedback from the market that it you know it meets its schedules and like in basically every area except for probably making money because there's just no way that it could lose money. Uh, he was, you know, failing miserably. It never had the right um, product quality. It never had the right features. It looks terrible. No one respects the application as a product. People actually frown upon it across the entire uh, community and likely gaming industry, I would assume. Um, it never hit its schedules. It's just like a complete laughingstock and embarrassment to the gaming community. And he's in charge of that product. That's his job. So, like, regardless of, of it, like, is he the only problem at Watsi? And is he the, the, the sole reason why, why MTGO sucks? Obviously not. Lots of people are doing bad work for that program to be so awful. But he has the position where he is the scapegoat for that, you know, for that blame. He is the ultimate owner. And it's on him if he doesn't have the right team uh, developing the product or getting the right results from marketing or what have you. It's his responsibility to figure out a way around that and to convince management to either invest more money, hire new people, let go of current people, or or you know do something mo- remotivate the team or or figure something out so that the product doesn't suck like that that's his job he failed at at that job for sure i agree he was passionate i mean uh, he probably did all he could he just like <laughs> couldn't do any better i i, I don't know so i mean I, maybe he shouldn't have left the company they probably just repurposed him i think he was doing other stuff before he got involved with magic online and he's probably a fine project manager or a fine implementation manager or something, but just not doesn't have the right vision for what magic online should be. Uh, so shouldn't be the product owner of that platform. Now in terms of like, and why he, why I think he got let go and why he didn't leave is that um, Chris Cox actually uh, in his announcement says he's creating this new group called the digital game studio. And I think this is actually going to just straight up replace um like worse old like functional group, which was like called magic digital studio or something like that at, at some point. Um, and I would assume that Chris has some people that used to work for Microsoft or whatever, when he was doing edu- educational gaming uh, design with them that he wants to bring over and lead the vision for magic as a, 
as a digital product and there's like a conflict between who's going to lead that design, right? Is it going to be the guy who hasn't been able to produce the right results when you're just looking at it from an analytical basis for the last, you know, five or 10 years or whatever? Or is it going to be someone you trust who you've, you know, had probably a bunch of successful designs with at your, you know, at your previous role? I, I see this happening in the tech industry a lot where like you'll get a new CEO or a new high level executive come in. He'll evaluate everyone under him. And anyone who's underperforming, he just cuts them and replaces them with people he trusts from his previous employer, right? So the, the new guard comes in and, uh, you know, hopefully that team, like hopefully Chris Cox actually did have a talented team that worked uh, well for him before and they can produce something useful. But yeah, I, you know, I think he was let go just based on the fact that there was redundancy in his position and Chris Cox wanted the organization run by someone that he trusted. I don't know if he mentioned who's running the new digital game studio, but I assume it's probably... Oh, yeah, it's led by industry veteran Jeffrey Stiefel. And I wouldn't be surprised that uh, if they had some interaction in the past in, in some way. All right, that does it for First Strike Episode 9. Uh, remember to just click on the thumbs up if you enjoyed this episode. And as always, well, not for the past four weeks, I'm going to be giving something away. Uh, you can only, I just realized, you can only leave a YouTube comment a couple of minutes maybe at least 10 after this video has done processing and, and posted. So you'll have to wait like 10 minutes, but leave a comment. The winner for last week for $10 face-to-face game store credit is Andrew Wagner. I've replied to the YouTube video. So private message me with your face-to-face games account email. And uh, yeah, just give this video a thumbs up, leave a message, talk about uh, what do you like about pre-release your pre-release price structure? Talk about what you thought about Rob's evaluation of Mimic versus Doug's evaluation of the and commons that that we brought up. Uh, talk about the direction of MTGO or Magic and and everything that we talked about. We'd love to read them. We we check them. We check the comments. All of them. I read all of them. So that's it for us. And we'll see you next week. And and leave us questions that you want us answered uh, next week or. If you're drafting and you can't figure out what to pick, you know, listen to these two GP top eighters, including GP champion Robert Lombardi. You know, pick the Ray. Hit, Just hit me up on Twitter. Hashtag Doug wins. That's all you got to type. I'll find you. <laughs> <laughs> great. Great. <laughs> all right. We'll see you guys next week.